This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. Carrie Moss, over two decades, turned the ACLU of Michigan from a tiny office in the book building downtown to a major national force. As she prepared to move to New York for a job with the national ACLU, we talked with her about her work and her future. Here's our conversation. First, let's talk about ACLU's role with Prop 3 called Promote the Vote. We'll make it easier to vote in a number of ways. No reason absentee voting, straight ticket voting, election day registration, and better provisions for members of the military to cast their votes. Uh, talk about the history of the organization's interest in this ballot initiative and why you figured, figured, hey, let's get this on the ballot and it'll probably pass. Well... For years, the ACLU of Michigan and many other advocacy groups, NAACP, League of Women Voters, many have been, you know, struggling to modernize Michigan's election system. Michigan is was at the bottom of the pack uh, going into um, even the 2016 election. The legislature had just been unwilling to uh, bring about any reforms. Over 37 states had one or more of the reforms that was in Proposal 3. So coming out of the 26th presidential election, uh, we saw an opportunity to really double down, partly driven by the incredible interest and activism we saw here in Michigan of people wanting to be engaged and we could we could feel the momentum there uh, for voting rights reforms. Also partly, you know, watching on the national landscape, a number of voting suppression tactics just kept kind of taking hold. And we knew that Things like same-day registration and um, uh, absentee voting, which is essentially early voting, could really be a stopgap. So with that in mind, we kind of pulled together a great coalition and uh, and, and kind of dusted off um, a lot of the policies that we'd been trying to get through the legislature. And there you have it. That was kind of how it all happened. Were, were you surprised that it passed and that it passed with the support that it had? I wasn't. Our polling always showed uh, that we were in the high 60s uh, and that the proposal was extremely popular, not only among Democrats, but also Republicans and independents. So uh, I was surprised. I think that there wasn't stronger opposition uh, at some point. But aside from that, um, what we ended up seeing, we passed at 67 percent. It was even probably a little higher than some of our polls showed. So that was really encouraging. And another really interesting fact is that we got, Proposal 3 got 500,000 more votes than the new governor or Senator Stabenow, right. which I think shows that uh, Republicans really did want this uh, and that they're also Republicans are not down with the voting suppression agenda. Uh, I want to read a comment from Twitter here and have you react to it. Diane says, Proposals two and three, and two was uh, the gerrymandering uh, proposal. Uh, they're both intended to enfranchise voters. All efforts to make voting harder is anti-democratic, lowercase d and capital D. We supposedly have the greatest nation in terms of the voice of the people, but we have some of the worst election setups. If you put two and three together, I think they represent one of the largest changes in the way that we cast our ballots and choose our representatives that that I can remember certainly happening at one time here in the state of Michigan does this does this move us more toward 
the kind of uh, balance and fairness that someone like Diane is is talking about, the two of these together? Well, I've been all year saying that uh, it's pro- proposals two and three are a one-two punch for democracy, or maybe a two-three <laughs> punch for democracy. I think it's Dave Waymire modified my statement. Um, yeah, no, I uh, together it's really powerful. So uh, proposal three could potentially increase voter turnout in the 2020 presidential election by upwards of 400,000 votes, 2 to 9%, right? So that's huge in terms of making sure that every voice is heard. Uh, and then Proposal 2 will have a significant impact after the next census. So in, in you know, the in putting power in an independent redistricting commission to draw legislative lines. So the two do different things and together are really powerful. Mm. Uh, let's take uh, a couple more calls. Let's go to Scott and Novi. Scott, welcome to Detroit today. Hi, how are you doing today? Good. Um, you know, I, I'm principal, I voted for, for three. I think that should be easier for everyone to vote and that we're better off. However, you know, my concern uh, remains that, um, uh, especially in the city of Detroit, in uh, Highland Park, there, there are a large number of assisted living facilities. And uh, we discovered in the mid-90s, our daughter who has cerebral palsy, had been registered to vote. Even though she can't read, can't write, she was voting in the Detroit elections. Now, we put a, and she had been registered through Motor Voter. So we put an end to that. However, um, you know, there are a number of people living uh, around the state who don't have uh, family members who are conscientious or even participating in the lives of their people. Um, So, you know, it, it concerns me that that uh, that community is ripe for abuse, uh, given the, given the the uh, the new proposal uh, that that'll take take effect. And uh, w- wondering what kind of safeguards hmm. are in place to uh, prevent that that community from being exploited. Scott, I really appreciate the call and mm-hmm. the questions, uh, Carrie. There's there's always this this question, I guess, out there about whether making voter registration easier, making absentee ballot voting easier, whether these open up the process to some sort of chicanery, right? Uh, People doing things on behalf of other people who are not necessarily consenting. This whole idea of voter fraud. How do you you answer those concerns? Well, I don't know how Proposal 3 would exacerbate that. Uh, And there's certainly never been any evidence um, of a voter fraud or uh, of people manipulating the process. I um, imagine that that there can be abuses, but uh, but I would think they're rare, um, far between. What proposal? One of the things Proposal Three did that I think is really important, and and you talked about briefly in the last segment, was it, it, the inclusion of an audit. Um, now really will uh, ensure that the integrity of every election is monitored and, and monitored using best practices. And so until now, that's been pretty hit or miss in, in this state. So I think actually now our elections are going to be more secure. Hmm. Uh, I, I want to pivot a little and talk some more about the ACLU and what it has been up to. This has been a big year for the ACLU in terms of not just support for the work that you're doing, but the kinds of things uh, that you got involved in. Um, one of them was 
the detainment, uh, the detention of Chaldean and other immigrants here mm-hmm. in, in southeast Michigan that made headlines when it happened. I know that the ACLU was was deeply involved in it, but of course, as as often happens, it's kind of faded from from our from our vision at this point. Can you give us an update on on where we are with all of that? Yeah, so this was, you know, in June 2017, on uh, over a few days, ICE came into Michigan and arrested over 100 members of the Chaldean community uh, for deportation, um, all Iraqi, planning to deport them. Many of them uh, had not been to Iraq in decades, um, have no relationship, no family there, and in fact, faced risk of torture, death, or persecution because, because they're a member of a religious belief. minority. Correct. Um, we put together a legal team. Uh, it was an incredible team. And uh, stopped the deportations. We were able to get the court to agree that they're all entitled to uh, hearings on their uh, removal orders and an opportunity to get bond. And the judge also granted nationwide class action status to everybody around the country who was arrested in that same short period. So we ended up representing over a thousand people nationwide, and most of them have um, not been deported. Our lead um, plaintiff, Sam Hamama, just an incredible man, very courageous, uh, is, is was released on bond. So we're very proud of this work. Uh, we really, you know, worried so much about what could happen to people um, if they were returned to Iraq. Iraq apparently had promised to take them back and then said that they wouldn't take them back. And so what's happened is this community got caught up in national politics uh, and, and really, you know, at risk of, of loss of life. So, And, and they are part of a much broader community that I think is is more on edge is more under attack uh, right now in this in this era of this particular presidential administration where sort of turning on their head on its head uh, lots of things that that we have taken for granted about who's here mm-hmm. how long they're here what their status is uh, the, the administration's been very aggressive about challenging those notions they did it here uh, they've done it with with uh, lots of other with lots of other folks uh, and and what i worry about all the time i guess is even if you win in court as as it mm-hmm. looks like you're going to do in this case the disruption to somebody's life of being detained of being threatened with uh, you know uh, expulsion and and being sent to a country where your life might be on the line it it has the potential to change us, I think, as a nation and change the way we think of each other and, and relate to each other? No, uh, the immigrants are under attack in a way that I think, you know, we've not seen in decades and decades. Uh, there's no question that we need nationwide immigration reform. Um, that's been true for decades and decades. But rather than really take that on, you know, we have seen immigrants being demonized um, and targeted uh, what happened earlier this year with family separation and children being kind of ripped from their parents' arms, I think, is uh, uh, completely unconscionable. In fact, we were busy here in Michigan working with the Michigan Immigrant Rights Center to reunite many of those families. But the damage done to those children, I, I just can't. It's it's kind of unfathomable. 
So do we need nationwide immigration reform? Absolutely. Is this kind of aggressive demonizing of immigrants, um, distortion of the facts of what they contribute to society and taxes and and work and and everything else uh, is, you know, a real test of our democracy and our character and our values. I mean, this is a nation born of immigrants. This is a nation that has always uh, had a policy of bring me your tired, your poor, your hungry, yearning to be free. And that is not what's going on right now. And and I worry very much about um, the impact that demonizing will have in in, uh, fomenting hate. Mm. I also want to talk about the ACLU's involvement with tax foreclosures here uh, in the city of Detroit. There was uh, a settlement uh, reached about the over the dispute of, of assessments here in mm-hmm. the city. The city had not adjusted assessments as as the, the, the market crashed and people's property values uh, went went way down. Um, it, I think most people saw the settlement as a step in the right direction. But is there more to be done with the tax foreclosure issue from a legal standpoint, from the ACLU standpoint? So this involved, right, the uh, failure, mistakes made in reassessing property taxes. Thousands of Detroiters were at risk or lost their homes because of it. The settlement really was, uh, and this is to the city's credit, you know, a um, an agreement about fixing that uh, and and making sure going forward that that it is easier for people to get poverty tax exemptions when they qualify. And so it was a really kind of ridiculous, arduous, impossible process before. So I think there's a lot uh, uh, a lot of good work ahead and a commitment to to fix it so that it won't even require additional legal intervention. I think if the city does a good job. So kudos to the city for settling that case. Uh, but yes, I mean, there is the, I, I think, larger problem of people being foreclosed out of homes for really, uh, you know, uh, uh, the wrong reasons, right? And not simply because they can't pay their, their mortgages anymore. And, I th- and it requires a real commitment uh, from the business community, I think, and, and the city, an ongoing commitment to do what we can to make sure that uh, that people are not unfairly and wrongly losing their houses. Uh, also, the ACLU honored Amy Stevens at its annual mm-hmm. dinner last week. Uh, do you th- see things changing for trans and gay people in a positive way in our country? I, I, we had Amy on the show and talked to her about what happened to her. Uh, these are these are stories that you would hope were not. We're not things that are happening right now in our country, and yet they they are. Are we are we moving in the right direction, and are we moving fast enough? Well, I th- are we moving in the right direction? Yes, right. We now have marriage equality. Uh, unfortunately, in Michigan, uh, it's still legal to discriminate against people who are gay because our state human rights law has not been expanded to protect that community. I think that is a a. a a challenge uh, that this legislature has got to take on. The business community has been calling for it for a very long time. Uh, but, you know, right now in this political climate, uh, it is so divided and and people are being so demonized that 
Uh, I think it, it is, you know, we've taken a step back for sure. Uh, but we know that, you know, the wheels of justice turn slowly and, and, you know, for every step back, we take two or three steps forward. So I'm over the long run, I'm optimistic, but, but this is a difficult time. There's no question. Uh, do you, do you think that, um, uh, some of the things that we are seeing nationally in terms of the way in which people are changing the way they think and feel about these issues is what will push legislation, uh, the, the cultural change, I guess, that I mm-hmm. feel like we're witnessing. Um, is that the the sort of strength of of change? Yeah, I think the voter turnout we saw in this election is, is only the beginning of the story. It's mm-hmm. not the end. I have never in my entire career seen uh, so much interest, excitement, enthusiasm, and engagement in the election process as I've seen the last two years. I think it is a new day. I think the youth vote. Uh, uh, I think youth have been radicalized, and, and I just by saying that word, I mean that they understand the importance of uh, participating in civically, and and they're galvanized, particularly on the the gun issue, and that was certainly we see that, saw that in numbers in the election last week. I think we're going to see it uh, even bigger uh, in the 2020 election. So uh, yeah, there's a new generation of leaders. We have now, for the first time in history, a hundred women in Congress. <laughs> uh, there were a lot of firsts. A lot of women of color getting mm-hmm. elected to office. Our first two Muslim women, right in the country now. The first Native American woman in Congress. Uh, I've uh, so many young women running uh, and trying. And so uh, again, never seen that before. And I think it, it, it's all very good sign. Coming up, more of my conversation with Carrie Moss, former head of the ACLU of Michigan. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Carrie Moss. She led the ACLU of Michigan for two decades before recently leaving for New York and a national job with the ACLU. Let's talk about the, the change for you this year. You took a national position with the ACLU in New York, but of course you still live here with us in Detroit, at least for a little while. Uh, talk a little bit about this new position and how it will be different from what you have been doing here? Well, so my new position is uh, heading up the department that is uh, works with all the states in the country to kind of build their capacity uh, for, for the work, whether it's legal, uh, legislative, um, organizing, working on ballot proposals, development, the whole kit and caboodle. So it'll be more of a 10,000 feet kind of a job in, in many ways. 
And, uh, you know, I'm really looking forward to just kind of helping every office be its best. You know, my job here in Michigan was building the the team here, the the work in Michigan. It was, you know, focused on one state. Um, you know, and I had to do a lot of fundraising and working with the board. Uh, those things uh, I won't be doing anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but instead, you know, focusing on a national landscape. This is an important time for the ACLU as an organization, and I feel like uh, some of that is driven by the fear that people have about this president and the things that he's doing. Uh, But the response for a lot of people has been to go to organizations like the ACLU and try to make them stronger and try to support them more. Talk about that support and how dramatic it has been. Well, the support has been phenomenal. And I think right after the election, we saw just an absolutely huge spike in membership. And and I think for me, my observation about that is that we're trusted. You know, we're about to celebrate our 100th anniversary and people both believe that we're effective and, and we get the job done, but but also they, they understand we're nonpartisan and, uh, you know, our focus is on the issues. And so... That has been very galvanizing. That support allowed us in Michigan to be able to run with a ballot initiative like Proposal 3 and the voting rights. And so we've been able to engage uh, more volunteers in the work. Uh, We've just launched a new program in Michigan called Smart Justice, focusing on eliminating cash bail reform. You know, um, and so it's allowed us to work in different ways, I think, and and to be even more effective. Part of the national narrative right now, I think, is, as I said, this fear of what uh, what this president, what his administration will will sort of kick up and and make make acceptable in terms of the way that uh, people are treated in this country, in terms of what you can say to people, in terms of what you can do. Um, At the same time, there's a debate over speech and free speech and the value of free speech. And sometimes we see those things come into conflict, right? Uh, So so, uh, uh, a white supremacist wants to come and have a rally someplace or give a speech. And uh, the ACLU, I think, sometimes gets caught right in the middle of, of those tensions, right? You, you have to be for free speech because that's one of the pivotal sort of foundational liberties that we have here in the country. At the same time, uh, you're, you're dedicated to protecting everyone's rights equally. Talk about how you navigate that space in a time like this when both sides are so exercised and so often find themselves in conflict? Well, first, the first thing I want to say is I think people, we've had a huge lesson in civics and uh, in this country in the last <laughs> couple of years, and people care about democracy and they feel it's under threat, <clears throat> excuse me, in ways um, that I don't think has ever been the case. And so that's a good thing. Um, uh, you know, but it, democracies are messy. And people are afraid and people are very angry. And as you know, you know, the nation's as divided as it's ever been. So these are have always been tough issues to navigate. They're especially tough right now. And I, there's a very, you know, good and important conversation going on within the ACLU. 
Um, you know, for decades and decades, the ACLU was the only organization that that stood up for for the First Amendment. Um, that's not so true anymore. Now there are a lot of other organizations that do it, and so I think it's possible for us to be really uh, thoughtful and careful about um, when and how we do. We've made a commitment in you know many ways that uh, we would only. Uh, uh, get involved in kind of hate speech when nobody else will sometimes or and or you know the first amendment the client is the first amendment the client is not the speaker so only when the first amendment kind of is at risk and we want to be sure we can work with the communities that are affected and to do that well and so those are just the things we're talking about you know doing and doing better do, do you feel particularly accused right now of choosing sides in the political struggle as opposed to advocating for civil liberties. Uh, when someone like Richard Spencer, for instance, is running around a college campus is trying to get space to, to, to say really hateful things uh, about people and rally other people to that, to that point, do you feel like that side values the ACLU the same as uh, liberals who would who would protect uh, the, the the targets of Richard Spencer's speech, uh, or, or do you feel like uh, they've written you off? I mean, are are you part of the conversation on both sides? I don't know what the conversation is on the Richard Spencer side. He has his own lawyers, so <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Again, our client is always the First Amendment, and you know you can see one of the core principles for the First Amendment is the government should not be picking and choosing speakers, right? You know, do we want Donald Trump making the decisions about who gets a public platform? I don't I don't think so. So the integrity of the First Amendment at the end of the day is what we care about. Uh, so let's talk some about the ACLU of Michigan. You took the job of executive director in the 1990s. Uh, talk about what the organization was like then and what it's like now? Well, it was, uh, it's been quite a journey. And I, I want to thank you for, for featuring so much of our work all these <laughs> years and to all the listeners who've been supportive um, and stood by us. Uh, I, I've learned a lot and, and I'm just so grateful for the opportunity I've had to be the director for, for 20 years. When I started, we had four employees and we rented an office. Uh, <laughs> Uh, on Washington Boulevard, and there were spiders in the filing cabinets. You know, it was it was uh, uh, tough. And now we have about forty employees, and we own a building on Woodward. And the breadth and depth of work and the quality of the staff is just you know so amazing. And and the being able to build it um, and being able to um, develop a lot of different muscles, whether it's you know hiring lawyers or hiring legislative advocates. Um, and just building a program that I think reflects the breadth and depth of important civil rights issues in the state has just been an honor and a privilege. Mm. So I remember going to that old office in the Book Tower. Right. Uh, you were one of the last tenants, I think, in that, mm -hmm. <laughs> in that building. Uh, and and meeting with Howard Simon, who was your predecessor. Uh, and it was a really different organization then than it is now. I, I, I wonder what you did to grow it. How did you go from that four-person office to to what you're you're managing now? What were the things that that accelerated that growth? 
Well, fundraising, for one thing. I mean, you know, the, the money makes a difference. And, you know, whether it was individual donations or grants we got from foundations, you know, when money comes in that allows you to build a sustainable operation, it is incredibly powerful. And, you know, we, um, I think um, progressives often tend to think of money as dirty, <laughs> but the <laughs> fact is it allows you to hire great people and it allows you to launch new programs. Flint would have never happened, for example, our work um, and kind of exposing the water crisis wouldn't have happened if a foundation hadn't agreed to give me money when I asked to hire an investigative reporter. So that was kind of a risky thing, and a foundation believed in in me or and believed in the office, and, and um, I think we were able to play a really pivotal role. So obviously having the resources is crucial. Having the supportive leadership. I've always had a wonderful board of directors and board presidents who were willing to take risks, who were supportive of growing and expanding in a smart way. Uh, and so, you know, it was just possible to, to really have a, a team. And, you know, I, we always really tried to prioritize building bridges across the aisle and finding common ground. And I think that that always makes you more powerful and effective. And, and it's something I worry a little bit about now that, that with the divisiveness, there's less motivation to be collaborative. But it's incredibly powerful when, when you can collaborate. I'm talking with Carrie Moss, who led the ACLU of Michigan here for 20 years. She's got a new position with the National ACLU in New York City. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET, and I'm Stephen Henderson. Uh, You talk about that difficulty getting people to work together. Uh, Can you talk about some ways in which you still see the ACLU being able to pull that off, being able to, to work on both sides of the aisle? Well, sure. I mean, I think two of the big issues that have risen to the forefront in the last couple of years are immigration and, and the voting rights. And, you know, both issues, um, you know, having humane immigration policies and, and expanding access to the ballot and stopping voter suppression are not Democratic issues only. There are absolutely also Republican issues. And, um, you know, I, I think we've really been able to galvanize both Democrats and and Republicans around fair, humane policies and and better voter access, you know, initiatives. So, I think LGBT rights. You know, we've had strong support from the business community for a number of years, and it, it really has been, uh, you know, pretty partisan politics happening in Lansing that has prevented making sure that we can get equality enshrined in our state laws for the LGBT community. I'm still optimistic we can do it. Um, and I'm optimistic about what this governor should be able to accomplish as well. So so there you go. There's three, three top-of-mind issues. Yeah. Uh, what do you see for the near and long term of the future of the ACLU of Michigan? Now that you're stepping away, are, are there things that uh, you anticipate them having to deal with that that uh, maybe you'll miss <laughs> being in New York. Oh, I'm going to miss <laughs> Michigan so much, and I'm I'm going to miss uh, the staff and and the issues in- incredibly. Uh, the organization's going through a search right now for a new director. Um, you know, so a lot will depend on kind of uh, uh, who they select and what their style is, and I am sure everybody will be very very supportive of the new person. 
I, you know, it's hard to say what's on the horizon. I expect that immigration and voting rights will continue to be very much front and center. The organization has also really made a deep commitment to what we call our smart justice work, and that is really trying to reform criminal justice policies to reduce the prison population and and address the racial disparities, the number of African Americans in prison, doing that by changing bail reform um, and sentencing policies. And so I'm you know pretty confident that there will be no change in, in that in the importance of that work. It's been elevated not only in Michigan as a priority, but but across the country. Yeah. Uh, the uh one of the one of the things that the ACLU did while you were here was try to change the way we think about funding for education and the way we think about the value of education. And it was through a pretty inventive uh, lawsuit, I thought, uh, this idea of suing, saying that the Constitution guarantees each of us the right to learn to read. Uh, that suit went through the courts, and uh, I, I believe that we the lost. litigation is over. You, it's, I mean, you're, there's nothing mm-hmm. pending. You, you weren't successful. But I wonder if you could talk about that kind of approach to the ACLU's work. Uh, mo- most people would read the Constitution and say, there's nothing in there about learning to read. Uh, most people would look at case law for hundreds of years and say, well, there's nothing in here that says learning to read is a constitutional right. Where did that idea come from and how did you decide that that work was worth doing for the organization? So the idea of a quality education is something that is is not new. I mean, the ACLU has worked on that around the country in different ways. You know, uh, the ACLU has been very involved in education back in the Brown versus Board days and fighting segregation and um, and and discriminatory funding. <clears throat> so it wasn't a brand new issue. But what we were trying to do here in Michigan kind of came out of the fact that we'd been so uh, unable to be successful in Lansing that the uh, proposal A, which changed how schools were funding, was continuing, did not solve the problem of huge disparities between districts uh, and did not address many of the problems faced by urban communities and rural communities and just a real frustration that the legislative process was not working. So the lawsuit uh, came out of the idea that our constitutional language is, is ambitious. It expresses a value that, that everybody has a right to an education. So what does that mean? And the lawsuit was trying to say the, at, the, at its most fundamental level, a right to an education means that everybody has to learn how to read. Can we all get on the same page about that? Uh, and unfortunately, our state courts did not agree. But I don't think that fight is over. I, I still think legislatively we could uh, get clarity that that is a fundamental right. But of course, rights aren't, you know, in the Constitution aren't the, um, the end of the game. We, our legislature has to fix the financing scheme for schools right now. It is um, not working. Even though we're spending a lot, we're not spending in a smart way. Were there things that you think were uh, excavated or discussed in that suit that give strength to the idea that that the legislature could could revisit that? I mean, in, in other words, you lost the the lawsuit, but did you change minds? I hope we did. I think we very much put on the front burner this idea that that learning to read is the first thing that has to happen in every single school in the state and that there is an obligation that the state has to make sure 
that that happens. And I, I think we changed the conversation. I mean, I would like to know if you think that. I, I mean, I've heard people say there's a right to, to learn to read. I mean, I've heard people say that, echo back what you guys mm. alleged in that suit to me in conversation, which I would say is a sign of changing minds, right? It's, it's educating people in some way. And, you know, something to say here, you know, lawsuits never change complicated social problems and lawsuits are never alone, right, going to solve everything. What we often are trying to do is they're, they're one tool, right, um, and among many, whether it's legislative advocacy or, or you know, working at a grassroots level. And so if, if we can change hearts and minds and we recognize that sometimes change just comes slowly and we, we have to have a long game in mind, I think that really um, is who we are at, at the ACLU. We're not, we're not just about filing lawsuits. We have much bigger goals in mind about freedom, justice, and equality. Hmm. Coming up, more of my conversation with Carrie Moss, former head of the ACLU of Michigan. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Carrie Moss. She led the ACLU of Michigan for two decades before recently leaving for New York and a national job with the ACLU. I want to talk a little about gun rights uh, because I think we're also in a period where everyone is asked to think a little more frequently and maybe a little more deeply about what the Second Amendment to the Constitution actually means. We see mass shootings far more frequently right now than we have in the past. The SOU has generally been pretty soft-spoken on gun rights and gun ownership. Does this, uh, does this recent cycle of events push the organization in a direction that will see it take a more active role? We, we have always supported gun control, um, the extent to which different state offices do that aggressively it kind of varies. I don't think there's any, you know, one 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 approach. Um, so the, the existence of the Second Amendment doesn't mean that, gun, you know, the ACLU uh, in any way thinks that gun control laws are inconsistent with with the Second Amendment. So that's kind of a non non issue from my perspective. I was really uh, intrigued to look at the election results from last week. Fifteen. Uh, members of Congress who had A's, uh, A ratings from the NRA lost 
to Democrats who had F ratings from the NRA. So I think what we're seeing nationwide is an outpouring of money and resources into electing people who will be more supportive of gun control laws. And uh, I, I think that the days of the NRA um, dominating and preventing any kind of reform at all are, are probably over. Is the ACLU's position on gun rights, in your mind, consistent with the idea of civil liberties? In other words, uh, the amendment is very, very clear in in its language, uh, and and I've heard people say, well, if the ACLU was really about liberty and not about liberal liberty. It would be it would be more for gun rights. It would stick up for gun owners a little more. It might be aligned a little more closely with the NRA. You, How do trying you to be that? provocative, <laughs> just a little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, I don't think that the the amendment, uh, the Second Amendment, is, is uh, does not say that an, every uh, American person living in America has the right to buy any kind of guns and any kind of ammunition and, you know, become their own militia. Uh, that is not what the Second Amendment says, but I think that's essentially what, how, what the NRA has said it wants. And so I think it's kind of up to us to to push back on that interpretation. Um, uh, and it's going to be, I just think, kind of an ongoing uh, journey, right, to, to get change the the way we kind of perceive what the Second Amendment allows and doesn't allow. And, and I think people have been woken up to the reality that this kind of idea that the Second Amendment means anything goes, those days are over. Hmm. I, I, I want to talk a little about LGBT rights because ACLU has been so involved in, I think, the transformative change that we've seen uh, on that front. Uh, but I, I also wonder what you think is the strategy to get to the next steps. Uh, we did see the Supreme Court say that states cannot decide uh, who who you can marry if you're gay. In other words, uh, uh, gay couples can't be singled out for different treatment in that way. A huge, huge decision. But of course, there were all kinds of other provisions uh, of our our uh, our protective amendments uh, and when you talk about civil liberties uh, that that gay and transgender people are still left out of right uh, at the federal level at the state level I'm always curious about whether litigation is the way to change those things litigation that gets all the way to the Supreme Court and the justices say, okay, this is going to be the law of the land. Or are there smaller victories that that then sort of build to a national kind of consensus, maybe through the legislative branches? I'm always curious about how you sit and think that through. And when you're when you're so close as we are, I feel, to, to these breakthroughs, um, how do you get to the next one? Such a good question, and, and it is a very hard question. I mean, I think all of that has to happen. Uh, sometimes, you know, lawsuits are the way to give voice to the voiceless and so can be immensely effective and can help change hearts and minds. And I think if you look at all the lawsuits that were filed around marriage equality around the country, 
you know, each one changed hearts and minds in its own way and, and helped educate people and, and, and give the LGBT community a real voice in our, in our legal system, in our system of making laws. But alone, lawsuits do not change hearts and minds. And, and what really changes hearts and minds are the individual stories of family members and coworkers. And, uh, you know, and I think that LGBT advocates have seen this for a long time, and that was also part of the strategy to get marriage equality. And it's also the part of the strategy to make sure that our state human rights laws protect the LGBT community. So on the horizon, I think it will be really important that we work nationally to make sure state laws protect this community. I think the transgender community continues to be the most vulnerable. Uh, they're the ones who experience the most violence. We've got to be, you know, really standing with them uh, and educating people about about what it, you know, what is transgender. I think a lot, for a lot of people, it's, it's a mystery. And so with every day, we make some progress, but but it's uh, it's slow. And, and there are some efforts to sort of separate uh, that community from others. In other words, uh, there's people who say, yeah, I'm okay with the gay community having the same rights as everybody else, but I don't think that's true for transgender. Uh, and, and I think the work then becomes more difficult uh, to, to sort of say, listen, the, the idea here is that discrimination is the problem, not uh, the difference between people, right? There, there should be a more general non-discriminate sort of stance that the government takes when it's looking at people's uh, personal choices, uh, the, their lifestyles, and and who they are. And this is, again, a situation where I think so much just depends on, on uh, exposure. We uh, actually hired some people from the transgender community to, you know, go up to Lansing and meet with legislators who did not know that they'd ever met a transgender person before. And, you know, just that, that kind of work and, and, and uh, try, you know, doing what we can to support that community and give them a platform and uh, uh, humanize, right, you know, uh, just through the building of relationships makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. I also want to talk about voter access and voter rights, uh, also two big issues for the ACLU. I feel like with this past election on a na- on a national level, we saw some things happen in terms of uh, how we think of, of voter rights that were really significant. And and here I'm thinking of the provision in Florida, uh, which got rid of felon disenfranchisement. Mm-hmm. I saw a number that 40% of black men in the state were ineligible to vote because of this provision. I mean, I can't think of... Uh, right, that passing of that proposal could add a million point five people to the voter to the rolls voter in rolls. Florida. I, I, that's uh, that's mm-hmm. unimaginable. Um, at the same time, in Georgia, you saw the Secretary of State, who was a candidate for governor, engaging in, and indulging Outrageous. A, a massive amount of voter disenfranchisement for a number of different reasons. I, I feel like this is the next frontier of... Uh, real struggle in this country uh, about how we protect the rights to vote and how we make sure uh, that people who have that right are able to exercise it. Uh, There is a real 
division in this country about about that. I think between conservatives and liberals, or Republicans and Democrats, or however you want to describe it, that that I, I think is as ripe for some sort of uh, prolonged litigative or legislative conflict as it as it ever has been. Yeah, no, democracy is very much at stake, and it's playing itself out, at, of course, logically in the voting rights field. You know, Michelle Alexander, who wrote uh, The New Jim Crow, had mm-hmm. an op-ed in The New York Times uh, not that long ago in which, you know, she really said beautifully how what we're really undergoing right now is a new nation being born, multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-faith. And what we're seeing on the horizon here, right, is... is um, is the kind of ugliness, right, of that transformation. And that is the long view, that we are moving to a society that will be, you know, um, multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-faith, <laughs> and where power is going to be shared um, that way. But unfortunately, right now, the way in which our democracy is... is uh, I don't know, lived, right, is is very much at issue. So, you know, the ACLU is incredibly committed to stopping voter suppression. Uh, you know, these allegations of voter fraud are undermining to democracy, and we are investing in initiatives. We put $5 million into the Florida initiative, over $2 million into the Michigan Voting Rights Initiative to try to make sure that the rules of the game are fair. Okay, Carrie Moss, outgoing director of the ACLU of Michigan, incoming director of uh, a program at the national level for the ACLU. Really great to have you here. We'll miss you here in Michigan. Thank you so much. Thanks for your great show. I'm going to miss it terribly. We will still have you on. There's no question about that. That's going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow.